The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. I'm standing with Dean, Doyle, Benson and Brewer under the imposing pine trees beside what used to be the two tennis courts, which is now the main playground for the school. O'Brien joins us. He tells us that Mrs. Strader is in town. He says her name is Margaret Rowan. Then Flynn joins us. Flynn knows she'll be visiting Bracey's this afternoon. Bracey's is a department store, sells a lot of clothes. Brewer says she must be the most beautiful woman in Australia. Benson says he'd like to have a look at her. Brewer says he'd like to know what Flynn could tell about her. So we decide we'll meet at Bracey's after school. We all turn up, even Dean. We hang around outside the store. Across Main Street, a group of publics is gathered around the Bluebird Cafe. They're about the same age as us. Hammond is among them. I judge them harmless. They judge us as harmless. They're probably here for the same reason we are to see the most beautiful woman in Australia. Eventually, a Chrysler Royal parks in the bus stop. A driver gets out and opens the back door, and Miss Australia gets out of the car. There are wolf whistles from the publics. She is beautiful. We stay silent, holding our bikes, eyes glued on her as she's escorted right past us into Bracey's. She's dressed for an opening night in Hollywood. Her appearance Her deportment impeccable. She seems unknowable. We look at Flynn. He nods. And we all know she's had a route. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. John Doyle is an actor, writer, radio presenter, comedian and former altar boy. Today I'm talking to John about his latest book, Blessed, the breakout year of rampaging Roy Slavin a year in the young life of an Australian sporting legend. John, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Absolute pleasure to be here, Greg. So it's 1967 in the New South Wales town of Lithgow, also known as the arsehole of the universe. A young Roy Slavin is attending the De La Salle Academy. So as accurately and honestly as your memory will allow, John, can you paint us a picture of life in Roy Slavin's Lithgow? Look... Lithgow in that time, in fact, most of Australia and possibly most of the world, the Western world, that is, um, it was deeply sectarian. There were there was us and them. There were Catholics and there were publics and publics were not to be trusted, had no morality. And we were the keepers of the faith. And uh, that, that was our, our worldview. So we were deeply suspicious of uh, anyone who wasn't of our particularly Irish Catholic persuasion. Uh, the priests were all Irish, but the, the brothers, to give them their due, um, were men of vocation and faith and really did their level best. Many of them were untrained. Uh, they, they just, you know, decided to be brothers and had no training at all and just, just did their best to, 
teach us in the way they've been taught themselves, I suspect, which was without much insight. It was just by rote um, and uh, fact-based, apart from the uh, religious knowledge part of it. Uh, we used to have a, a period of religious knowledge, first period of the day, every day, and uh, where philosophies were, well, sort of limited in their ambition. Uh, the ambition was probably to convert the rest of the world to Catholicism and to keep your eye out, boys, if you got the calling, um, because the calling meant that you could join us in this great quest to, uh, to convert the world. Uh, so that was the, the world that uh, Roy grew up in. But to give them their due, they loved their sport. And for some reason or other, they loved rugby league. I don't know why, but uh, I suspect rugby league and coal fields went hand in hand because coal dominated uh, Lithgow. Um, every house had hot water supplied by uh, what we called a donkey, which was a um, combustion fire that was normally in the in the laundry, and this had to be kept kept alight twenty four hours a day. 365 days of the year. So in summertime, the laundries of Lithgow were blazing furnaces. Um, <laughs> uh, so it was coal, it was smoke, um, and it was sport. I actually understand that Roy was a power slave. What impact did that fact have on his social standing in Lithgow? Uh, well, he arrived uh, in Lithgow in a young age. His father was from Cowra, the Cowra Slavens, but uh, Roy had been born in Lithgow. So Cowra was just a place he visited irregularly, uh, sometimes around Christmas time. They might go and uh, stay with uh, his uncle and aunt, whom he got on very well with because his uncle had uh, toured with the, um, the uh, Australian Rugby League team to England in the 50s. Didn't get to play in a test match, but uh, played in some of the lead-up games. As I understand it, uh, Uncle Baz, I think, yeah. is the man we're talking about, yeah. um, brought about a kind of a turning point in Roy's life by presenting Roy with an Australian Rugby League jersey. It did. It was the, uh, the closest thing to a relic of significance that he'd ever touched. It was like touching... Uh, a piece of the cross of Jesus, I expect, Greg. This was a, a, a talisman that was almost beyond comprehension to have be given a, a rugby league Guernsey that had been worn in a match by an Australian team. Uh, it, it was the most fabulous thing he'd ever seen or touched. And to imagine it was his was uh, beyond imagination. Didn't have it for long because Dad nicked it, but anyway. So that was the beginning of a, an illustrious career? Uh, well, Mum had always, his mum had always got him interested in, in sport because she, she loved sport. She was good at it. She could read a game. I mean, Dad was hopeless. You know, Roy's, Roy's dad was hopeless. Uh, he used to play rugby league, but as Mum pointed out, he never thought. He didn't use his brains. You know, if there were 10 people on one side and one on the other, He'd run at the 10, not at the 1. So she was constantly frustrated with how hopeless he was. 
And because uh, Dad, Roy's dad had a pretty short wick. Um, when uh, they were playing touch footy when Roy was eight, Dad really got annoyed with him and uh, and uh, tackled him as hard as he bloody well could and put him in bed for a few days. Um, Dad didn't like losing and he lost most of the time. Um, Mum was better at him with tennis too. You know, Dad, all Dad could do was hit the bloody ball hard. No touch, no finesse. Whereas Mum was very much full of touch and finesse. So uh, any uh, competition that was held in the backyard, the final was always between Roy and his mum, not Roy and his dad. <laughs> As time wore on, uh, uh, Roy earned the reputation of uh, the playmaker of all playmakers, uh, a sporting savant, but also a team player. And I understand that Slaven was quite a frustration to a young Graham Eady. Uh, yeah, uh, Brother Hugh had organised a, um, a, a game against a, a, a team from the mountains in which uh, Graham Eady appeared. A terrific player too, he was. And uh, they, they were sort of a bit older than us. They, they were in you know, what you call year 12. We were, we were in year nine. They, they were much older. But anyway... Uh, we, we sorted them out. It was the, the proudest day of Brother Hugh's life, the, the fact that we were able to uh, secure a win. Edie, uh, you know, lost his rag a few times because uh, we, we sort of worked out a strategy, or Roy did, worked out a strategy of closing him down. And uh, he reacted badly. And when he did, we, we got a penalty. And from the two penalties he gave us, we scored. It was one of those, you know, one of those things. But Brother Hugh was very, very proud of us. Going back to your, to Roy's mother for a moment, uh, and she has, oh, Roy has very fond and tender recollections of his mother, but I never knew that uh, Roy's mother actually invented the torpedo pass. Yeah, look, I, I'm led, as far as I know, it was the first time anyone had ever seen it because um, mum had watched uh, the way the torpedo punt worked just uh, kicking the ball on the side and getting it to spiral, which which gave it uh, much more accuracy and and length. So she worked out a way of being able to pass the ball torpedo style, uh, which gave Roy the ability to steer play in a way that hadn't been done before by uh, introducing the cutout pass, which had never been seen before. This this baffled a lot of uh, you know baffled a lot of teams that uh, De La Salle played against in that year. Uh, it caught on, of course. I think it was later introduced to uh, first grade rugby league in Sydney by Ricky Stewart. So uh, whether Ricky was aware of what was going on in Lithgow at the time, I'm uncertain. But uh, but uh, but uh, as nearly as I can tell, Roy's mum invented it. She seems to have been quite a woman that Paulette, um, but she also had a life of her own. I mean, she was um, up to 80 words a minute on the Remington, which earned her uh, a position at the Lithgow Small Arms Factory. She did. She got, a, she got work at the typing pool, uh, which was uh, much sought after, Greg, at the time. Mum uh, had been working at Burley's uh, clothing factory, which was a pretty thankless job, uh, working uh, uh, night shift, which was really a, a real challenge for her because it was a challenge for her when dad left, when Roy's dad left, um, she had to be the breadwinner for the family. 
and uh, the church sort of frowned on women working for a start and uh, did all they could to intervene to bring about a rapprochement between uh, Roy's mum and dad. It, it was never going to happen. Um, but it was typical of the time. See, mum, Roy's mum was pregnant at 16 and forced into, I mean, the only, the only thing she could do really was get married at 17. And it was not uncommon for, the, for that to happen, uh, which caused a severing of any connection with her family because her family were publics. And so she had no further contact with any of her family. So she was isolated and alone and badgered a lot by the priests who would call in offering advice and trying to steer her, keep her within the church, keep her maintaining the sacraments of the church. And in her heart of hearts, she didn't believe a word of it, not a word of it. So uh, it was quite common at the time for this, for this to happen. I was also unaware until I read Blessed that Roy was actually a natural tennis player. At one point he gave John Newcomb a pretty serious fright, but I didn't know either that he actually invented topspin. Well, I don't know about invented topspin. I, I think uh, Rod Laver uh, had, uh, had, had used topspin. Um, he uh, lowered the uh, tension on the strings of his racket, Rod Laver did, uh, a bit like John McEnroe did, so that you could control the ball um, with volleying. You could uh, you keep the ball on the strings just for a nanosecond, and in that nanosecond, you could steer the ball with alarming accuracy. Uh, now, what, what uh, astounded, I think, uh, uh, Harry Hopman when he first saw Roy play was that uh, Roy didn't change his grip between forehand and backhand. Uh, most players did, and uh, which slowed them up a little bit and limited them a little bit. But uh, Roy keeping the, maintaining the same grip was through strength of wrist, I expect, uh, was able to uh, use topspin from both the backhand and the forehand. And this was astonishing to, uh, to someone like John Newcomb who was at the old school where you changed the grip when you played a backhand. Roy seems to have pushed the boundaries in quite a number of ways. Uh, the match between Brian Lawson, the stuff of yes. legend now, but yes. uh, in that match, Roy displayed the fastest serve ever seen in Lithgow. Well, so said uh, Len, um, uh, the, uh, the journalist from, uh, from the Lithgow Mercury, who... Uh, was in part responsible, largely responsible for the for the match to occur. Um, Brian Lawson was the uh, local champion, and uh, through circumstances, uh, ended up having to play Roy before the Lithgow crowd, and uh, uh, Roy gave him a toweling, um, which uh, surprised uh, certainly Herbie Wilson, the local coach, the local Lithgow coach, who'd never seen anything like it. Um, and Roy experimented. Uh, he, he introduced his serve. He, he sort of learned it on the job during that particular match. He'd never served like that before. 
but it occurred to him that, that that you could do that you could toss the ball and leap at the ball so that you were airborne and over the line at the point of contact now lawson argued that this was an illegal serve but of course it wasn't as herbie wilson pointed out but uh it was certainly a match many many people of a particular age in Lithgow still recall, as you mentioned, Greg, with absolute fondness. <laughs> in those early days, do you think Roy himself was ignorant of the, the level of natural sporting talent that he possessed? Uh, look, I just think he found he could just do it. It was, was, he didn't have to think about it. It was like when he was playing snooker. The ball just went where he wanted it to go. And he found that when people would question him about tennis, you know, how do you do that? He just said, look, the ball goes where I want it to go. Uh, so that was, his, that was his great skill. Now, whether you're born with that or not, I'm a little uncertain, Greg. It's, it's a combination of nature and nurture, I expect. It was uh, mum's patience with him in the backyard near the coal heap and uh, the natural gifts that he'd been given through genetics. A lot of people have said that uh, Roy just gets it. But beyond that, he also played with Catholic values. What are those values, John? And, and do they spill over into Slavin's civilian life? Well, the Catholic values of which you speak, the Lithgow Shamrocks Rugby League team that was uh, formed by Father Granall from Portland and Father Kane, who'd uh, arrived from Dublin, I think, uh, they cooked up the uh, the Shamrocks because uh, Lithgow at that stage only, well, well, they had two teams, but uh, Railway sort of disappeared and uh, the Lithgow Workmen's Club was the, the major team. So uh, Father Granell decided to, it'd be good to have a club with what he called Catholic values. Now, Catholic, Catholic values, as nearly as I can tell, are honesty, uh, belief in the power of the Lord and uh, accepting and participating in the sacraments, Greg. Now, the sacraments are largely confession, communion, and if you do these things, everything will work out. Bear your Catholic values. Be faithful to the church. Keep the faith. Maintain the faith, Greg, and the faith will see you through. It's a wonderful life philosophy. And from that, I've got to ask or an observation that I've made through reading this book, that there's a suggestion within the pages of this book that Roy Slaven may be the perfect man. Well, that's what Cathy Wilson said. Now, Cathy Wilson was uh, uh, Roy's mum's sort of best friend. She encouraged him to go out to the clubs and what have you. And... Uh, Kathy Wilson was of the view that uh, Roy might be the perfect man. Uh, his mum told him that. and uh, But she did uh, say as well that uh, it would be so easy for Roy to have a big head, but he hasn't. And that's, that made her very proud, that he had a, a sort of natural humility that uh, sat very, very comfortably beside his genius for the balls. Did Roy ever find love in Lithgow? Uh, yes, he found love with Barbara. And Barbara was his first, his first, well, Susan Morgan was his first 
sort of girlfriend, although it didn't sort of work out because she wasn't allowed ever to go out or go to the pool or anything like that. Very strict family. Uh, whereas Barbara, on the other hand, um, he and Barbara got on very, very well and she was his first girlfriend. And uh, they got on very well, very well indeed. She was a public, as I understand it. No, Barbara wasn't a public at oh, all. Right. No, no, no. Vicky Westwood was a public. And oh, Vicky of course. Westwood, Vicky Westwood uh, ended up with Flynn. Uh, they, they got on very, very well, uh, Flynn and Vicky Westwood. No, uh, Barbara was a Catholic girl. Barbara was a good friend of Deidre's. And in fact, I was talking to Barbara just last night um, and uh, I'll be sending her a copy of the uh, copy of the book. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be pleased to receive it. Um, if we can turn to your role, John, in Roy's life. Yeah. In the early pages of the book, according to Slavin, uh, you, John Doyle, were a crawler. How do yeah. you respond to that? Well, I, well, it's his, his words, not mine. Um, so I can only accept that he was right. And by crawler, if he means someone who does their homework on time and tries not to get into trouble uh, and, uh, and uh, is someone that teachers feel they can trust to man the weather station and, you know, odd jobs around the place, then yes, he was a crawler, definitely. As Slavin's friend and official biographer, do you yep. feel you made a contribution in shaping Roy Slavin, the man? Well, probably I have um, in, in ways I can't identify, Greg. Um, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, yes, uh, I, I feel I can... Um, I feel I'm in a position now where I can... Uh, put Roy's words in my mouth comfortably. One thing I always check every year, the Queen's birthday and the Australia Day Honours. Yes. Uh, I check in the hope of seeing Roy Slavin's name there. There are, uh, there are a few Australians that have achieved as much as Roy. What's it going to take, John? Well, these things are baffling to me, Greg. Uh, every year uh, I, I fill out a form, you know, suggesting that Roy should be you know, acknowledged in some way. And I, I rope in a number of people to, to uh, uh, assist in this. And uh, all, the submission is always the same. You know, I, I, I managed to get, uh, you know, uh, John Newcomb and uh, a number of other players, uh, tennis players, that is, to, you know, fill out the form. Uh, a number of rugby league players. I know Chuck Raper did. Um, I know Mick Cronin did. I spoke to, spoke to Mick about it and he was happy to do it. I know Ray Price was happy to do it. Peter Sterling was happy to do it. Um, what about Ricky Stewart? Was he? Uh, no, I haven't approached, haven't approached Ricky, but it's not a bad idea. So I might do that uh, in time for next year's Queen's Honours list in the hope that that might get Roy over the line. He is a man of influence, of course. Stick, yes. Oh, Sticky, yes, yes, yes. Marvellous bloke. <laughs> to be fair, John, it's hard to discern where the division of labour lies in the writing of Blessed. Yes. How much credit do you ascribe to Roy and how much credit do you take for yourself? Well, I was able to make sense of it. Um, as I point out in the, the opening moments of the, uh, of the book, um, 
Roy was uh, happy to sit down and I was prepared to put the tape on and he prattled on for several hours and uh, then he'd leave and uh, I would remove my questions from the uh, copy and then show it to him and uh, he would make corrections. Um, so by and large, I, I think it's been a, a healthy exercise for both of us. Uh, he's happy with his story put into some sort of formal, cogent way that he lacked the patience to be able to do. I had time on my hands and I'm blessed with a lot of patience. So I was able to sort through the dross that he gave me and uh, turn it hopefully into something that is at least borderline readable, Greg. That's a great insight. And, and uh, another question I've got, and this is quite a difficult one, John. Mm. I put it to you, John Doyle, that Blessed is much more than a book about the breakout year of Roy Slaven. Is Blessed a John Doyle memoir in disguise? A Clayton's memoir, if you will? Yeah, look, you, 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 you could argue that. And I, I would say what, uh, what interested me about 1967 for those who can remember it, is that uh, it was the first time, I think, or I felt that there we were in Lithgow uh, being influenced by what was happening in the United States with the counterculture, with the summer of love, and what was happening in the United Kingdom with popular music coming into our, coming into our midst and television arrived and uh, we could go around to a maze place and watch television and pop culture became the driving force of our generation. Whereas the generation prior to us had been mainly influenced by the depression. So you had the people of the depression sitting side by side with this new zeitgeist that was blowing through popular culture. And that's what interested me uh, about that year. And it's summed up the, 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 the uh, symbol of it, I think, was us getting up really early, Dad and me, and watching the Beatles perform All You Need Is Love live in London. And there we were in our lounge room in Lithgow being joined with some force that we could barely understand but were incredibly excited by. We felt we were part of something new that was happening, and we were. A telling moment for sure. And I've just got one final and important question for you, John. Rooting King, how many yeah. winners has he sired thus far? Well, my understanding is that... Uh, I mean, you won't find this uh, written anywhere or the records anywhere, but I know for a fact that Rooting King side winks for a start. I suspected as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's still, uh, you know, he's still capable of uh, being excitable uh, and getting excited if he gets anywhere near a mounting enclosure, Greg. Well, that's a wonderful thing, John, a wonderful thing indeed. So, John Doyle, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Absolute pleasure, Greg. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, John. I've been talking to John Doyle about his latest book, Blessed.
The Breakout Year of Rampaging Roy Slaven. It's published by Hachette. It's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.